This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Sinking Middle Class, A Political History of Debt, Misery, and the Drift to the Right by David Rodiger. In The Sinking Middle Class, acclaimed historian David Rodiger skillfully challenges the save the middle class rhetoric that dominates our political imagination. This slogan misleads us regarding class, nation, and race, Rodiger argues, and talk of middle class salvation reinforces myths holding that the U.S. is a providentially white, middle-class nation. As Robin D.G. Kelly puts it, As the nation burns and the future appears uncertain, David Rodiger delivers another incisive, timely, clear-eyed analysis of class and race in America. His point is clear. Another world won't be built by pollsters or slick election strategies aimed at saving the middle class. We have to grow a movement. The Sinking Middle Class, A Political History of Debt, Misery, and the Drift to the Right, by David Rodiger. Out now from Haymarket Books, and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is episode two of our four-part series on the history of modern Iran, with Eskandar Siddiqui, Borajerdi, and Golnar Nikpur. In our first episode, and you may want but do not have to listen to that first, we covered the Constitutional Revolution of 1906, the Civil War that followed, and the liberal, clerical, and radical politics that flourished in the years leading up to 1921, when Reza Khan deposed the Qajar dynasty and, in 1925, became Reza Shah. We followed Reza Khan's program to modernize and Persianize Iran by building up a strong, centralized state. It was a politics that responded to widespread anxieties about a century plus of two major imperial powers, Britain and Russia, taking advantage of Persia's weakness to seize its territory and dominate its politics. This episode begins in 1941, with the two World War allies and longtime imperial powers in Iran, Britain and the Soviet Union, occupying the country to secure oil for the former and land supply routes for the latter. That allied occupation deposed Reza Shah and replaced him with his son, Mohammad Reza Shah the same ruthlessly repressive Shah who would seize total control after the U.S. and British orchestrated coup in 1953 and who then the Islamic Revolution would overthrow in 1979. But actually, and somewhat ironically given the history that would follow, that Allied occupation and the replacement of the Shah with his son created a moment of major political openness, including, notably, for communist politics. Iran's Communist Party, and the only true mass party that has ever existed in Iran, flourished throughout most of the 1940s. They built enough political power to enter government, and enough power in workplaces 
workplaces like the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, to shut them down in mass strikes. Tude was in many ways radically novel. But it also didn't come out of nowhere. Its program of anti-imperialist nationalism, women's enfranchisement, and worker power drew from long-running left-wing currents dating back to the constitutionalist revolutionary movements of the first two decades of the 20th century, as well as labor and communist politics that contested for power but were repressed under Reza Shah. But the Soviet Union made things awkward for Tude by, one, supporting autonomist movements in the provinces of Kurdistan and Azerbaijan. The latter provinces' movement in particular was very interesting and important in its own right, as we'll discuss in the interview. And then, two, calling for an oil concession of their own. Tudez's support for giving oil to the Soviets at a moment when the nationalist left was demanding the nationalization of the British oil concession, as well as their support for the regional breakaway movements, that all did not sit well with broad-based nationalist sentiment hostile to any force that would break up or weaken Iran. In 1949, an assassination attempt on the Shah was erroneously blamed on Tudeh, and he used it as a pretext to outlaw the party, the greatest threat to his rule, and also to generally act to curb the power of the elected government. Nonetheless, even as Tudeh was suppressed— nationalist forces demanding control of the Anglo-Iranian oil company surged forth, winning nationalization and bringing Mohammad Mossadegh and his National Front Coalition of Parties to power. The British were apoplectic and quickly moved to shut off Iran's access to international oil markets and to strangle its economy, and to push the U.S. to join it in launching a coup. Tude wavered denouncing Mossadegh as a foil for American imperialism, thereby making the strategic error of reading the movement for oil nationalization and against British colonialism through the Manichaean lens of the Cold War, further undermining their base of support and popular legitimacy. This episode ends with the infamous 1953 coup against Mossadegh carried out by the CIA and MI6, their British intelligence counterpart. If you know something about this period of Iranian history, this is likely it. For the British, the loss of the Anglo-Iranian oil company, the company that is today known as BP, was intolerable. For the Americans, it was the example that Iran set, amid the Cold War and on the eve of widespread decolonization, that had to be stopped. And so MI6 joined the CIA, which had just been established six years earlier, in carrying out the first of what would become many coups. The Iran coup was followed just the next year by its overthrow of the government of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala for daring to legalize the Communist Party and redistribute uncultivated land belonging to the United Fruit Company. Mossadegh's government would inspire many across what would soon be known as the Third World. It was also a signal moment for an ascendant U.S. empire that was surpassing the British as overlords of the capitalist world system, a power that would act decisively to ensure that casting off colonial rule would not equate to third world countries possessing any meaningful economic sovereignty within that world system. And it was, of course, a decisive moment for Iran, reinstalling Mohammad Reza Shah with absolute power. And that's where we'll pick up in episode three, the next episode, with the brutal two-and-a-half-decade rule of the Shah 
and the Islamic Revolution that overthrew him in 1979. Before we get started, this podcast is a listener-supported operation. Sure, we do get some money from lovely publishers like Verso and Haymarket, but we are overwhelmingly funded because listeners support us at patreon.com slash the dig. Here's how it works. You go to patreon.com slash the dig. Open up that website. You sign up and make an automatic monthly contribution of any amount at all. Because you all do that, I can do this for a living and pay everyone who helps put the show together. All without us having to paywall any of our episodes, which we are resolutely against doing because we want everyone to be able to listen regardless of your ability to pay. And so if you can afford to contribute, say $5 a month, please make a contribution now. A contribution of any amount gets your excellent weekly newsletter delivered to your email inbox. If you can afford $10 or more a month, well, that's just fantastic, and we will send you a book or books in the mail or a dig tote bag or a dig mug. Please take a moment and contribute what you can if you can afford to contribute at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. The link is right there in the show notes. Okay, here's part two of my interview with Eskandar Sadigi Borajerdi in Golnar Nikpur. Watch the podcast feed as our next two episodes on the history of modern Iran are released over the coming weeks. Eskandar Siddiqui Borajerdi is a professor of contemporary politics and modern history of the Middle East at Goldsmiths College, University of London. He is the author of Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran, associate editor of the journal Politics, and co-edits Radical Histories of the Middle East. Golnar Nikpor is a professor of history at Dartmouth College with an interest in histories of law, incarceration, and rights in modern Iran. She is currently finishing her first book project, A History of Iranian Prisons and Carcerality in a Global Context, is on the editorial collective for the journal Radical History Review, and co-edits Radical Histories of the Middle East. In 1941, amid World War II, the two allied powers that were also the longtime imperial powers in Iran, Britain and the Soviet Union, occupied the country. The British wanted direct control of oil, and the Soviets wanted a land corridor to their country. They forced Reza Shah to abdicate and replaced him with his son, Mohammad Reza Shah. Why did they intervene in this way, and then why did they believe it was necessary to replace the Shah? to accomplish their objectives. And then where does that moment fit into that much longer history of British and Russian imperialism in the country that we've repeatedly returned to throughout this interview? Yeah, I think there are certainly continuities uh, in terms of this intervention, as I you know, should be fairly clear. And obviously they did intervene for the reasons and they felt that they could fall because of that history, clearly. But also, yeah, it was very much around the... Uh, imperatives of the war and ensuring that Iran was firmly in the hands of the allies. One of the accusations that was frequently uh, sort of made against Reza Shah that he had German sympathies and that he was in a sense trying to use Germany as a balancing, as a balancer or a counterbalance to sort of the outsized or oversized power and influence of 
both the British, obviously, in the southwest of the country, you know, the Anglo-Persian um, oil company and its sort of huge outsized influence, um, as well as, yeah, I mean, the, the huge neighbor, the, the sort of the, the Goliath to the north, you know, the Soviet Union. Um, so, you know, they felt that they could do it. It was necessary to do it as far as they were concerned. And they justified it in terms of saying that, you know, Reza Shah were, had German sympathies. He wasn't, he was told on multiple occasions to expel German advisors. Um, the reality is that he did it. He was actually doing this. And I think the most recent research shows that he actually was complying. And what's interesting is that Rita Bullard, who was the British ambassador at the time, quickly switched positions from being um, very much on board with Reza Shah and having an almost deferential position to actually very vehemently pushing for his ouster. And it was basically concluded um, in Britain, but obviously in collaboration with the Soviets, that he he had to go. And it really actually didn't matter what he did at that point. Um, um, also, I mean, uh, we, obviously, we've spoken about many of his achievements and the great amount of violence that was necessary in order to sort of realise this vision. I think it's also just worth going back a little bit just to reflect a little bit on Reza Shah's sort of modus operandi, the way he sort of um, actually uh, increasingly became more and more paranoid and despotic in, in the way he actually ran, he ran the state. So, you know, it's not a coincidence that his closest allies, whether well it's Ali Akbar that Golma was actually talking about a role in reforming the judiciary, sort of died in a sort of suicide. His closest ally, the Minister of Court, um, Taymur Tash, was actually killed. And um, he increasingly, yeah, had this sort of para paranoid kind of demeanour and was seen as alienating. He'd also actually accumulated huge and huge amounts of land in, uh, in Mazandaran, his home province, actually. And while obviously, you know, this is the period of the building of the Trans-Iran uh, Railway and, and lots of other sort of infrastructural projects, a lot of actually have made the argument that some of these, particularly in terms of the road buildings and so on and so forth, were often to actually facilitate and advance his own personal economic interests. So one of the things that's interesting is that when he's ousted, Anne Lampton, the famous or I should say infamous Orientalist, who, you know, her contributions are important, but she actually played in many ways. Uh, she's actually in Tehran at this time. And she's sort of working almost, you could say, as, you know, like a press attaché kind of thing, but it's basically like a propagandist in many ways. And she's sort of actually working with various Iranians as well. Um, some of them actually happen to be uh, members of the Tudor party, Tudor sympathizers, but that's another point which I'll, I'll park for now. But the, what she's writing at the time is sort of, uh, she's writing about the immense un unpopularity of Reza Shah. She's talking about like just how much actually um, the population was relieved to see him, to be rid of him, um, actually. So, you know, the Allies occupy, and actually what's actually interesting and ironic um, is that during this period of occupation, um, it's also a period of like political vibrancy and flourishing in a sense, and the emergence of um, sort of a degree of political pluralism and plurality, which hadn't actually been seen in certain, within certain parameters, of course. So I think that's actually important to note. Um, one thing that actually was very interesting at this time, obviously Reza Shah is exiled to Mauritius first and then ultimately to um, South Africa. His son is very, remains in Iran. But during this time, actually, the British are very much mulling over whether they actually want to just abolish the Pahlavi dynasty completely. Another point of interest is that the Indian Commonwealth Office at this time is actually pondering and actually very much pushing for the Qajar dynasty to perhaps be revived. Um, and they start actually Anthony Eden, uh, who would obviously become, you know, famously, you know, prime minister in the Suez crisis and such, um, is very much tasked with this. 
Um, and he sort of, and he, he actually studied uh, Persian Arabic at, at Oxford. Um, so he's actually meeting with the sort of the vestiges of the Qajar dynasty in uh, the UK at this time. And he comes to the conclusion this isn't very viable because basically the heir um, can't actually speak um, Persian uh, at all, uh, which is kind of, you know, which is obviously a problem. Um, and, but this is nevertheless being very much advocated and pushed by the Indian Commonwealth Office. Ultimately, and a lot of people sort of credit the statesman slash sort of literati intellectual um, Muhammad Ali Furughi with some careful manoeuvring, actually convincing the British and Rita Bullard the, and the ambassador that it may make more sense to actually have Muhammad Reza Pahlavi coronate, basically become the successor and actually become uh, the king and continue the Pahlavi dynasty. But like I said, it's sort of, um, you know, it wasn't entirely clear that the Pahlavis were going to um, continue as a dynasty for a period. Muhammad Reza Shah, for, for the time, resigned himself to a constitutionally constrained monarchy. He held on to the armed forces, but was compelled to give up control over much of the state to elected government. And and as you just mentioned, one consequence was this powerful reemergence of nationalist and socialist politics, including the foundation of the Tuda Communist Party. What was the Tuda Party, and where did it fit into this newly liberalized moment of Iranian politics? What what made it something beyond a communist party that happened to be in Iran, a party that instead was fundamentally and distinctively Iranian in its politics and its origins? And then how, throughout the 1940s, did Tuda build its power in the streets, in government, and in workplaces? Um, Tuda party, Tuda means masses. And as you said in the question, this is very much the dawn proper of, you could say, mass politics very, very clearly. I think it's important to note, though, that the Tudor Party initially came out of reading and intellectual circles, um, particularly around a publication by the name of Donya, which means like world. Originally, they'd actually wanted to call it materialism, um, but that was seen as too explicitly, uh, I guess, Marxist um, in orientation. And as Golnar uh, mentioned, I mean, uh, sort of socialism and socialist parties were basically prohibited in uh, the 1930s, like quite explicitly, under the Reza Shah government. So they had to be, so basically those who were sort of left-wing socialist activists had to be very, very careful about how they were actually, you know, framing their ideas. Um, and what's also important is that many of these leading figures, so people like Tari Irani, who wasn't a member of the Tudeh, but he was kind of very much seen as almost, you could say, the spiritual father of the Tudeh party. And the people around him, the younger sort of generation of people around who participated in these reading groups and were writing for Donya, um, some of them had gone to Germany and actually had lived through the Weimar Republic. Um, and they'd studied in Germany or studied in France at this time, and they had seen the rise of fascism as well. Uh, and this is actually where, you know, they're you know, very much actually in Germany, in Berlin in the 1930s, there's kind of a melee of like um, various sort of nationalist circles, so um, Hassan Tahrizadeh, who was actually one of the social democrats and leading social democrats of the constitutional era, he basically um, escapes Iran and is in exile, actually. And he established a journal in Berlin by the name of Carver. This had an influence on, you know, these sort of young emerging sort of generation of socialists, actually, in many ways, who had imbibed some of these sort of nationalist uh, ideas, but increasingly moved towards, you know, a sort of cosmopolitan form of 
um, socialist and that sort of socialist creed. And then they wrote sort of, you know, various modernist writings, you know, criticizing the, the roots of Iran's reasons why they thought Iran had fallen behind, criticizing kind of religious dogma, uh, mysticism, and so on and so forth. So really, the two-day party, you know, um, and, and what I should say, actually, this sort of circle around Tati Aroni uh, famously becomes the, the, the group of 53, it's this group which is basically put on trial uh, in large part, yeah, for their for their socialist um, beliefs, and they're accused, obviously, of sedition and such. Tariq Aaron actually dies in prison during this time, and in a sense becomes a quote unquote martyr. And then the Tudor Party, you know, is formally established in in 1941. Obviously, Iran is occupied, as we've been saying. Um, and it's established as not like an overtly communist party initially. It's really very much established in the mold of a popular front organization, um, anti-fascist. And actually, there were a sort of, you know, there were obviously various groups that were sympathetic actually within Iran to national socialism, like the Sumka and others. Um, so there was actually like a national socialist party. And there were various other elements, you know, exiles who were basically in Berlin, who were very much kind of um, uh, beaming in German propaganda actually into um, Iran, which was clearly very much in line with uh, the national socialist kind of agenda. So the two-day emergence is an explicitly kind of popular force, popular front force, anti-fascist, very much obviously trying. And the thing is, it has two parts, I think, which are very, very crucial to get. One leg is actually this sort of modernizing, egalitarian um, force, which draws basically every major intellectual of this period, every major intellectual from Ibrahim Golestan, the filmmaker, to Jalal Al Ahmad, the, the novelist, to people like Khalil Maliki, who would then become um, sort of advocates of what they call the, sort of the third force and very much uh, kind of independent socialist. Um, pretty much every single major intellectual was drawn to the Tudor because it was seen as both, a, had a uni- it was Iranian, but it had a universalist message, it had an egalitarian message, it had a modernist message. And that was extremely powerful, extremely captivating. Um, so that was one leg of it. The other leg of it was the sort of the labor movement, um, actually, um, which was extremely, extremely significant and obviously tapping into the immense resentment of the power of the Anglo-Persian oil company that would then become the Anglo-Iranian oil company and today is obviously known as, uh, known as BP. So we need to also just, I mean, take a step back and actually just think about the power which that company exerted. Not only obviously did it actually profit immensely and made sort of extortionate profits at the expense of obviously the Iranian polity. And this was very much a sore, a sore sort of uh, issue for Iranian nationalists. But it basically ran um, Abadan and huge parts of Khuzestan as a fiefdom. It had its own kind of personalized police force in order to ensure security there. It engaged in obviously the huge amount of exploitation of often proletarianized Bakhtiari tribesmen. It really kind of bulked at uh, the central government really giving it any kind of directives um, whatsoever. And this is actually something which uh, was also immensely irritating to uh, Reza Shah when he was actually king. And he had lots of sort of tussles with them and often came out for the worse. So, you know, there was just a meant resentment as this basically this foreign, this, you know, foreign controlled enclave um, controlled by, as far as they were concerned, you know, agents of the uh, British Empire. And what the Tudor party managed to do, through, especially through its affiliated union, or basically, at least not directly, but the Central Council of United Trade Unions, it managed to mobilize literally thousands and thousands of workers in the oil industry. 
So it had this immense kind of social power to mobilize labor, to go on strike. And obviously this is something which is built up gradually. It doesn't happen overnight. But by 1946, there are just like unbelievably huge strikes. It's, it's incredible, actually, when you read the, you know, the, the Foreign Office documents of the time. You know, basically, you know, often actually, some often you see women sort of addressing crowds about the great injustices which have been imposed upon Iranians by the Anglo-Iranian um, oil company. And actually, the British are extremely sensitive to this, extremely um, hostile. And actually, in the documents, you also find all sorts of rather, you know, absurd, almost shibboleths about talking about um, a Jewish Bolshevik kind of conspiracy in Iran, because they can't fully fathom how the basically the unions and those associated with the Tudor party are so so powerful in this period, and basically the Tudor has so become so powerful in 1946 that it basically um, it compels the government of Qavam al-Saltanah to incorporate you know three uh, ministerial portfolios they have to give them to the Tudor party. So I mean, just to like you know be very brief and in sum, I mean I think like one is sort of this like profoundly universal, uh, universalist project, modernizing, egalitarian, uh, class-based, um, which is extremely attractive. And it's so attractive that actually many of the leaders actually have, have a kind of aristocratic background. So um, Soleiman Iskandari, actually one of the, sort of the first sort of t- titular leader of uh, the two, that was called the sort of, you know, it was often referred to as sort of the Red Prince and obviously came from an aristocratic background. But there were also people who were very much workers, active in places like Abadan. So it really kind of, you know, it uh, stitched together various different sort of layers of Iranian society who were attracted to this kind of project, which was extremely successful until you could say probably the late 40s when it's finally yeah, outlawed. After an, under, after an unsuccessful attempt, assassination attempt on the Shah's life, which many actually don't necessarily think the Tudor was involved. It was actually maybe an Islamist who was actually trying to assassinate him. And this was used as a pretext in order to basically prescribe uh, the Tudor party. Yeah. One thing I want to get to before we move on to the, the crackdown on Tudor is it, in 1945, amid Tudor building such incredible power and really like a historic block of you know, comprising these various classes that all that all come together behind their program and behind their party and behind their unions. In 1945, the Soviet Union announced their support for groups fighting for autonomy or secession in the provinces of Azerbaijan and Kurdistan. And this put Tuda as the Soviet Union's communist ally in an awkward position, as did the Soviets demanding an oil concession, given the importance for Tuda and for Iranian nationalists more generally, of calling for the nationalization of the Anglo of the Anglo-Iranian oil company. How did the Soviet approach here impact Iranian politics and Tuda in particular? And then also what was going on in Azerbaijan? So I think this I mean I think this period this period is very crucial because it's also helps us understand why the two they lost a lot of support subsequently as well. So um, there's two things which are quite pivotal. So on the one hand, there's this very infamous article by Ehsan Tabari, who becomes, you know, the exemplary intellectual of the two-day party and is one of the sort of most, you could say, talented, uh, eloquent thinkers. He famously writes an article sort of calling for, if we're going to, if Iran is going to give a concession to the British, then one should also consider giving a concession 
um, to the an oil concession in the Caspian to the Soviet Union. And this basically creates a huge amount of outcry, not only amongst its membership, but obviously, you know, within broader Iranian society. That's one thing I think actually, which you know, you hear you know a lot of kind of intellectuals subsequently who are members of the Tudor and then succeed from the Tudor party, and many would actually succeed in 1948 uh, because of these two events. So this one is sort of the the Tudor's position of, on on the question of the Caspian and national independence as they see it and and, and sovereignty of Iran is one thing, and this is obviously linked to the question of the Democratic Party of Azerbaijan. And its sort of declaration and desire and push for um, autonomy in 1946 under the leadership of Jafar Pishavari, who was a veteran uh, communist, a member of the Iranian Communist Party, which predated and you know, the, the Tudor Party. So the Tudor Party are very much stuck, in a sense, um, as to what is the right position. And they publicly support Pishavari, um, but they also have... Um, reservations about maybe um, that position. And there's a lot of internal um, debate about it and ultimately how it transpires. But even that sort of that example, the example and actually the and actually what was the policies carried out by the Democratic Party of Azerbaijan were extremely, extremely, I think, important and extremely actually progressive in many ways. And I think this actually also gets lost and is forgotten. So one is actually they pursued land reform in a significant way, which was, again, not really... It had been advocated previously by the Social Democrats, had been advocated by various other kind of um, elements in the Constitutional Revolution. It wasn't sort of a new... Um, kind of demand, but it was actually properly carried out by the Pishavari government. And yeah, you know, un- un- unevenly successful. Women's enfranchisement. So actually the first time that women actually get the vote is not in the Constitutional Revolution. It's, not, it's actually as a result of the policies of the Democratic Party of Azerbaijan. This is like super important. There's also obviously the question of labor laws. So again, eight, eight hour day, um, all these sorts of things, uh, labor regulation, uh, actually, again, is also coming into effect in this in this period, and, and obviously, very important is the cultural linguistic question that um, actually uh, being taught and educated and be able to write and read in Azari, which is obviously extremely, um, yeah, was 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 very much transformative um, for many, um, and the legacy of that certainly remained. Subsequently, the memory of it certainly uh, was you know held up by many uh, in. In Azerbaijan. So, I mean, it, but it did put the Tudor party in this very difficult um, position. And there's lots of debates about what was ultimately uh, at stake and who was ultimately responsible and where the, and what mistakes were made. But nevertheless, this was seen as a Tudor party kind of opening the gate to um, separatism, the dissolution of Iran, and what Golan was talking about earlier, and it's posing kind of a, an ex- existential threat to Iran's territorial integrity. And then for many, it was seen as a betrayal and also as testament of the Tudor party not being an independent kind of socialist force, but being in a sense Stalinized and then subordinate and subordinate to the will of the Soviet Union. And actually, the real picture, the, the reality of it is more complicated. Actually, what we often see is the Tudor party sometimes overshoots and actually tries to actually pushes for more than the Soviet Union uh, actually expects from it. But, you know, it's a very complicated uh, kind of back and forth the two have. But the perception is that they are very much... Um, subordinate. I mean, again, this is a gradual thing. By the late 40s, obviously it still had a huge amount of support, but it's steadily being eroded and suddenly there's being more and more criticism um, of their kind of orientation vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. Just to kind of piggyback off of that, I think it's crucial. These are conversations, the relationship of indigenous communist parties 
to the Soviet Union is something, I mean, it's a global question um, in the era, especially in the era after the Sino-Soviet split. I mean, these are conversations and questions that are broader than just the Iranian context. But in the Iranian context, the perhaps sort of complicating factor or important factor is the historic role that Russia played as one of the two major colonial powers, right? So the perception that the Tude is, is attempting to advance Soviet aims in Iran is more devastating to uh, the Tuda than it would have been in a context where Russia wasn't perceived as one of the longstanding colonial, one of the longstanding colonial powers. Of course, it's not just a perception, right? There is, as Eskandar said, a process, a kind of, in fact, a relationship between the Tuda and Moscow and with the sort of, um, with the state leadership there. And there's you know, a sort of meaningful move towards as, as I mean, I kind of outlined it all. I don't want to go too much more into that, but I, I do want to say that this is in fact something of a, it becomes a particularly embarrassing problem for the two days. Intellectuals are sort of moving towards, you know, as in 48, towards the third force, intellectuals are seceding from the two day party. There's splits um, in its membership that are really about a kind of, kind of nationalist sentiment. This is an important prehistory to that 1951 to 1953 moment with Mossadegh's effort at oil nationalization, because this really becomes the question, right? Now, this is, again, a bigger question in broader uh, socialist communist politics at this time, you know, from the, do we support nationalist, uh, nationalizing efforts, national bourgeoisies and in anti-colonial movements, or are we looking for kind of vanguardist workers party, you know, like what, what is going to be the sort of engine that propels these liberatory movements forward? That's a broader conversation again, than that's, than that, which is just happening in Iran, but the way that they are materially, it, it is sort of materially played out is very much about Russia's historic influence and on the role of oil in the country. It's the sort of practical material with which these, in which these conversations are happening, you know, from which they're no longer abstract questions about leadership and become about sort of national integrity and so forth. And is that moment of crisis for Tuda, is that what creates this opening where the Shah not only moves to, to outlaw Tuda, but also briefly consolidate power more generally, marginalizing the entirety of constitutional government? I think I think the reason the, the move to outlaw it is simply because was such a potent force um, intellectually and in terms of mass politics and in terms of being, you know, organisationally um, savvy. And to be honest, it's really the only mass party Iran ever, it's the most successful uh, mass party Iran ever had. And it's the really the only real mass party which Iran ever really had. And that's why it really had to be um, crushed. I mean, there's no doubt. And there's an, 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 clearly... The, and subsequently, obviously, the Americans are very much on board with this. Uh, the British are very much on board with this. The Shah is very much excited about the, the project. And of, and of yeah. course, the Shah is the, you know, the person who's carrying it out because he sees, yeah, the, who, who sees it as a major um, threat um, to him because he's not interested in actually level this sort of degree of popular mobilization and being very much um, 
you know, directed with a clear, so grounded in a clear socialist uh, vision. I mean, that's antithetical to everything he obviously um, represents and what he thinks is his birthright. Um, one thing I just wanted to say, though, is that the two-day party is, there are these two events. I mean, obviously, the question of the, the Azerbaijan and the Azerbaijan crisis of 46, the Caspian oil concession, all these sorts of things, they are eroding the two-day party, but it is still a very much a force. And we also shouldn't just forget, like in this period, Following the Second World War, broadly, I mean, across the world, just to kind of globalize it, Stalin is a very popular figure. I mean, the Soviet Union is seen as defeating fascism. It's seen as sacrificing tens of millions of, you know, um, Soviet you know, citizens in the name of defeating fascism. It's actually it's seen as probably the most important power, really. We kind of forget this now in like 2022 and obviously um, the American sort of appropriation of being the sort of the decisive factor in, in the defeat of kind of Hitler. But obviously when we go back, we realise that actually, particularly in the... Uh, what was then called, you know, the Third World, or still hadn't quite been called the Third World, but was emerging as such, you know, um, the Soviet Union was actually extremely powerful, extremely uh, popular. And not just this, actually. I mean, also what happened in the Soviet Union, you know, this strong state-building exercise, you know, modernizing, moving towards industrialization, but moving from becoming an agricultural society to a predominantly, like, industrial, urbanized society. The Soviet Union was kind of paradigmatic of that transformation, and Stalin was seen as the architect of that. So, I mean, that was something which was actually, I mean, it was admired by uh, many Iranian um, socialists. And they, of course, you know, the, the information that we had of the internal purges was limited, despite the fact, actually, you know, as some scholars have shown, um, many Iranian communists, actually, like Ehsan um, Khan and others, uh, uh, ended up actually uh, being purged, uh, sub, you know, in, in these purges. So many actually Iranian communists were actually killed by in the Stalinist purges. But that nevertheless didn't detract from the popularity of the Soviet Union for many, um, in this period. And I think actually it is really the Tudor's position on the coup, which is kind of in many ways the nail in the coffin. One, because obviously it's seen as just a national betrayal, an absolute betrayal of the national movement. I think that's one of the main things. But it's also it's, it also provides the context in which the Tudor is finally kind of decapitated internally and then loses this kind of mass politics element, which had been its lifeblood in the 40s. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think of that earlier, that 46 to 49 moment as a kind of prelude to what Eskandar just described, the prelude to really the the true sort of breaking of the mass uh, popularity of the two day. I mean, I think I want to just bring a couple of things in. I mean, it's certainly true that the first time that uh, women's enfranchisement happens in any sort of uh, Iranian context is in the Azerbaijani context that Essie uh, outlines. But after a, with the two day as well, after a kind of early, at, at an earlier point of its configuration in the early 1940s, it, it, it sort of shies away from women's enfranchisement, women's rights, as it's kind of attempting to build this, this more pop, this broad based popular front, but it very quickly shifts to, as part of its program, a support for, for women's enfranchisement, women, uh, women's rights. So this is I think both Eskandar and I wanted to flag this as an important part of the the kind of story that we can tell going into the contemporary moment, exactly how these different ideas are sort of circulating in Iran. And they're really popularized um, in this case and in, in these in the emergence of these of these leftist movements. The other thing I wanted to just kind of reemphasize is that, yeah, this strange thing of the 1940s, both being in the aftermath of the Allied occupation, both being a time of, of foreign occupation and being a time of relative 
And again, relative is the key, but still relative political openness. Again, Eskandar mentioned this, but the reason I want to reemphasize it is because we have this, this kind of shift. You know, 1931, as we said, there's this law pa- passed as part of legal centralization under Reza Shah to, that bans, you know, sort of any form of communalist political organizing, basically an anti-communist law. It's in part through that law um, and in part through earlier, just sort of earlier um, suppression that the, you know, at the same time that that law is being passed, it's passed in the context of these smaller than what will happen in the Tuda era, but still these important um, organized tr- strikes in textile mill and Esfahan and in carpet factories in Mashhad. There's the Iranian Communist Party is attempting these these sort of initial labor-based organizing and strikes. And it's in the context of the 1931 law that a lot of uh, both intellectuals and, uh, and and Iranian Communist Party members are in prison. And it's at that same time. And this is not necessarily known by some of the next generation of communists until a moment later. It's, it is at that same time that uh, some other members of the party are being, sort of first feeling the the violence of Stalinist purges. So when the Tuda arrives in on the scene in 1941, in this moment of relative political openness, it has a couple of figures from this earlier moment are affiliated with it. But the people who are really the, the intellectual circles that are, it's, they're released from prison, it's kind of starting from scratch a process that's actually longer standing in Iran, labor organizing, um, organizing in specifically in, in these new um, workers' contexts, and also trying to bring together uh, intellectual classes uh, with that movement. So I, I want to both point to the kind of novelty of what, you know, the, what Eskandar points out, the enormous, I mean, really that it's the only mass, I think you can, I think uh, you can absolutely make the case that it's really the only mass political party that's ever existed in the Iranian context. And yet it is still building on a legacy that is really dialectical process between these repressive state structures and efforts at, at doing this type of organizing that the Tuda is much more successful at than its predecessors um, in terms of the numbers of people that it draws into its orbit. But its predecessors are also, you know, sort of crushed by this, this sort of um, 1930s Reza Shah context and also by losing some of its membership in Stalinist purges. So I just wanted to sort of flag that and the issue of um, the the issue of bringing women's rights into the sort of broader the broader political conversation. Of course, there had been movements talking, you know, intellectuals, movements, so forth. There had been a dedicated sort of um, movement towards women's education and women's sort of uh, angelmans in the constitutional period, women joining the political processes in the earlier part of the, the century uh, anew. But it's it's that sort of prehistory that I think gives us this this seeming breakthrough of a new kind of politics in, 19, in the 1940s period. We, I forgot to mention that they also had a, a peasant organization, you know, that was, that was, so often it's said that they were explicitly in urban and just focused on the oil station, which is obviously, that was where the main focus resided for obvious reasons. But they were also very much kind of trying to engage and politicize the peasantry in order to call for land reforms. And that's just super important, actually, um, because obviously, as I said, they weren't the, you know, we see land reforms in Azerbaijan, we see land reforms demanded from, you know, from really by the Social Democrats from the time of the Constitutional Revolution. We even see demands for union organising in that period. But the reason why it's important that the Tudor very much, like you said, is part of this deeper tradition. They don't just emerge out of anywhere, out of nowhere. They're pushing for these land reforms. So then when we understand, you know, when we get to 63, 
um, when the Shah is basically, you know, demanding, is basically pushing forward his white revolution, which is obviously, you know, antithetical to the red revolution, is really meant to preempt any danger of a red revolution. Um, we need to understand that that sort of, um, that the impetus for that is really coming from decades and decades of kind of struggle by socialists of various, you know, various coloration, very hue, various hues, and pushing for that. And like the Tudor explicitly had a peasant organisation, which they were sort of trying to politicise the peasantry in that direction. So it kind of sets the ground, um, you know, very much for, for later down the line in about, you know, a, a decade and a half or so. Yeah, absolutely. Just very briefly, the it's true that the Tudor, it's, for, you know, essentially obliterated in the aftermath of the coup. And it's, a uh, fatal mistake of not throwing its its weight behind Mossadegh, in fact, critiquing him basically throughout the process, is, you know, it, it also led to the, the sort of disillusionment of many, many, many who sort of were fellow travelers of the two-day, if not outright members. But <laughs> at the same time that that happens, kind of interestingly, many of the positions of its uh, sort of planks in the 1940s are taken up precisely by the post-coup, sort of increasingly uh, authoritarian um, Pahlavi government, the kind of ideas about women's enfranchisement, land reform, and so forth, are drawn from this longer legacy that the Tude is part of representing, but it also goes much further back into the constitutional period. So at the same time that it's extremely important to understand why the Tude acts as it does in the Azerbaijan crisis with the Caspian oil concession in the 1951 to 53 period and all of its missteps. I mean, serious, maybe missteps is not even quite a strong enough term. I mean, there is really a sort of moment where it, it's sort of reputation as having betrayed the national movement is one that is earned through its own decision-making in, in, in some part, but at the same time, it's legacy as bringing these ideas into the basically the mainstream of, of Iranian sort of intellectual and political life is that is not crushed in the aftermath of the coup. And it's even sort of appropriated and absorbed in uh, the Shah's white revolution in a way that's extremely important and interesting. Most people on the left outside Iran who know something about Iran know that Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh was overthrown in a coup in 1953 because Mossadegh move to nationalize Iran's oil. But before we get to the coup, let's talk about Mossadegh and the nationalist movement. How did Mossadegh's nationalist movement and his National Front coalition of parties come about and then come to power in the early 1950s, so soon after Tuda's destruction, or maybe not destruction, but outlawing and repression, and at this moment when the Shah had consolidated so much power. And then what various and rather divergent currents and constituencies did it mobilize? And to what degree did Mossadegh in that movement or movements embody previously dominant currents, like the politics that Tuda had put forward? Mossadegh is himself from an aristocratic background. And by the time 1951 rolls around, it's actually quite a longstanding veteran of um, Iranian politics, right? He's an older guy at that time. And the the young Mossadegh first made a national name for himself as um, one of the staunchest supporters of the 1905 constitutional movement. And at that period, he's already championing the sort of ideas that he becomes widely seen as synonymous with. 
kind of civic nationalist, liberal constitutionalist and anti-colonial position. So he's an anti-colonial nationalist. He believes in nationalizing Iran's resources and most famously and most importantly, oil. But he also professes a, a desire and a commitment to the constitutional process, unlike many of the other nationalists that we talked about earlier in the 1920s, who start to sort of veer towards a belief that Iran needs a Mussolini figure. You know, Mossadegh was critical of Reza Shah. Throughout Reza Shah's time, he's critical of the young Mohammad Reza Shah. And in fact, the National Front um, has its roots in protest against ballot rigging in 1949, a protest against um, sort of electoral malfeasance uh, in in Mohammad Reza Shah's kind of relatively early in his tenure. So Mossadegh in, in... Fall of like September, October forty nine. I think October nineteen forty nine leads a a protest to the to the palace. Um, he's calling for sort of fair and honest elections at a time when Mohammad Reza Shah, um, who had earlier kind of allowed, as we said, nineteen forty one to around this ni- late nineteen forties period, is a time of relative openness because Mohammad Reza Shah doesn't quite have the confidence to take the reins of authoritarianism the way his father had been holding them up to 1941. But the young Shah is trying to um, sort of increasingly uh, wrestle power away from these new movements, particularly the Tude that's emerging. And Mossadegh and the people around him are uh, trying to demand fair and free uh, elections. But the front itself, the national front itself, the party that's that's sort of associated with with Mossadegh, synonymous with his movement, is itself not a mass mo- mass based party at this point, and it doesn't have the kind of it's in fact not a party. It's an umbrella organization. It's an umbrella. I mean, it's a front. It's very much modeled on the idea of of an umbrella front that can bring in different political um, forces, different political tendencies, and this is actually uh, very much it's. It's in a way, it's it's strength and weakness, um, even into the second and third national fronts after the sort of breaking of the Mossadegh movement by the coup. There's really big debates about how to think about the front as a as a as a front versus whether it's going to be behaving more like a traditional political party. But there are, it's a broad kind of coalition. Um, it has both, I mean, Mossadegh himself is a kind of staunchly secularizing figure, but there are uh, religious nationalists, modernists that are that are affiliated with the front who who take, who are extremely loyal to the figure of Mossadegh. There's, I mean, there's several parties that are part of the initial front. There's the Iran parties, there's the Toilers party, there's several kind of important small, small, but these are small, small parties in terms of their actual membership. It's not like the Tude itself. But I do want to emphasize also that although the Tude party, its leadership has at best a vexed relationship to the Mossadeghist uh, project, if not an, a kind of outright hostile one, the rank and file, I mean, a broader sort of rank and file of, of the of the Tude and the broader kind of politicizing coalition of po- politicized progressive forces, whether religious or, or avowedly secularist, whether more Tudehi or uh, liberal in their in their sort of worldview, and also just sort of ordinary folks on the ground who have those, who have kind of more eclectic, um, non-doctrinaire views than sometimes party leaders themselves do. Um, Mossadegh becomes just this extraordinary figure who is seen as uncorruptible, unlike so many other uh, members of Iranian political establishment. Uh, is seen as someone who's not going to sell out 
the resource of the, the resources of the country to anybody is seen as somebody who stood up to the authoritarian tendencies of both Pahlavi kings, even though he is like kind of formally um, retires from politics, but then is still critical of the Shah. And once he takes the kind of more broadly nationalizing posture and claims the uh, mantle of wanting to nationalize Iran's oil, there's just an enormous amount of emotional sort of connection to that project by a broad base of Iranian uh, Iranians. So even though the National Front itself is not a mass party, Mossadegh as a as a figure and the nationalizing project more broadly, the kind of anti-colonial nationalizing project specifically around oil wealth, is very sort of broadly speaking popular. Um, so that's a kind of distinction, right? The Tuda is a mass party. And it has a weird rela- kind of vexed relationship to Mossadegh. National Front is not a mass party, but there is an enormous amount of broad-based support for the for the project of oil nationalization, which is seen uh, correctly as having stolen an enormous amount of wealth from, from Iran. You know, oil is first struck in one of these rapacious colonial concessions granted by the Qajar king to uh, British capitalists. It eventually uh, sort of sells the concession in large part or sells part most of his shares of the concession to the British government. And it's without without Iranian oil, the British war effort in World War One and World War II, the the, the wealth of, of Britain, particularly in the World War II effort, would would simply not have been able to move forward in the way that it did. And Iranians understand this to be a grave sort of grave loss, a grave sort of theft from their from their national coffers. So Mossadegh in in sort of giving voice to that demand become seen as this kind of a national hero. Uh, this is, in terms of his legacy, we can talk a lot more about really specific things that happen um, with Mossadegh in 51 to 53. There's a lot to kind of unpack there. But he remains a national uh, a, a national hero um, in ways that are, you know, he's sort of taken up as a national hero by different constituencies. But really the reason that he's kind of given the, that he's, such an important figure. You know, you'll see busts of Mossadegh at people's houses or images of Mossadegh even at protests through the revolution, into the post through the post-revolutionary period. And it's because he is seen as being the kind of most trenchant anti-colonial and uncorruptible kind of anti-colonial nationalist of the 20th century. You know, at the time, at the same time that you know this uh, important two-day party leaders are talking about, well, maybe we should give a concession to the Soviets at the same time that there is a concession to the British. Mossadegh is absolutely not about this. There's this longer standing theory in Iranian politics of what was called positive equilibrium, wherein if you're giving a concession to either the British or the Russians, you're going to give an equal concession to the other side. And the theory in, in, in develops among these kinds of essentially like collaborationist in many cases, uh, Qajar era politicians and early Pahlavi uh, politicians is that you, you're you kind of maintaining independence by giving these mutual concessions, right? That even the this, this Tudehi leader is thinking in those terms is it gives Mossadegh this kind of clears the floor for him to actually promote this idea of negative equilibrium, this idea that you're going to grant neither concessions to the British nor the Russians, that the Russians don't deserve an oil concession in the north. And in fact, all of Iran's oil should be nationalized and that the Anglo-British oil company, the, the company that eventually becomes, that is now BP, become, that it gets put into Iranian hands. And it should be noted that 
this really vibes with some of the frustrations that Iranians who are working in the oil industry feel because they're not allowed to be in positions of any kind of leadership in the in the company. Uh, they are doing the most brutal tasks, uh, the most difficult tasks, the most physically demanding tasks, and not allowed to sort of be rising up in the ranks of, of sort of so-called Anglo-Persian oil companies. So from Mossadegh's demands are vibing with a lot of the different kind of constituencies um, that are in some ways have politically aligned or been organized by the Tudeh, but which really take the call of oil nationalization as a clarion call um, politically, as one that is um, completely central to their vision of, to a kind of joined vision of Iranian independence and sovereignty. Yeah, I would just emphasize a few things. So the first would be obviously the, yeah, the umbrella nature of the National Front. I think that's super important and, you know, ranging from the Iran party to people like Ayatollah Khashani, who, you know, a figure who had participated in the Iraqi revolution in 1920 um, and then exiled by the British to Beirut. He was very much, you could say, um, a rabble rouser, um, had his own constituency, very influential, but very kind of um, adept, like politically. He cultivated, you know, various sort of interests. And he and actually he was for a time seen as the patron of an important group, uh, Islamist group by the name of the Fadayani Islam, that was basically a militant Islamist group who really wanted and demanded a kind of Isla Islamic, a properly Islamic state uh, in Iran. And this is obviously something... And that was going around like assassinating, you know, alleged secret Baha'is. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, attacking Baha'is. Um, it was assassinating politicians. It was basically... Intellectuals assassinating Yeah, it, it assassinated famously Ahmed Kastravi, this great historian of the constitutional revolution, Azerbaijan, so on. Um, and obviously he'd written very, very kind of, um, let's just say, uncompromising polemics against Shia Islam, but also Baha'ism, Sufism. And he basically had a very kind of unique vision of his own. Um, he kind of was very dismissive of the whole of the Persian uh, poetic canon. Um, he his his followers held book burning ceremonies. But anyway, I don't want to go down. But he was ultimately assassinated by the Fadil Islam because of his obviously very kind of forthright um, polemics against um, Shia Islam. Um, but you know, Kashani wasn't of their ilk. I would say. I say he actually thought that they were actually very much useful. And and actually, it's during the nationalization period that they actually, in a sense, have a rather strained relationship. But Ayatollah Koshani is very significant because obviously when he and individuals like Hosina Maki and Mozafar Baqai and others ultimately part ways with Mossadegh, and we can maybe discuss the reasons why that's the case, um, that obviously frays this kind of coalition, this kind of coalition of various forces. But, you know, it was an extremely powerful coalition, this galvanizing idea of, yeah, oil nationalization, controlling, in a sense, one's destiny, having control over our own resources. Um, you know, the question of Iranian sovereignty. I mean, these are extremely, extremely powerful and emotive. And as Golan was saying, I mean, they continue to live on and his memory, you know, continues to be very, this was the torch which he held is very much kept alive and burning uh, throughout the 60s and 70s and until this day. So, I mean, that legacy is, is important and has obviously been, um, yeah, many have written about it, you know, uh, endlessly so perhaps we could say. But I would say there's a few other things that I would like to kind of mention. I mean, um, and this, it does touch on some of the things which Golan was said, but I'd like to think, I think it's necessary to bring it out a bit more. He was a, 
um, you know, he was Qajar um, royalty, I mean, aristocracy. I mean, his mother was a princess. He came from this aristocratic background. He was, you know, he was incorruptible, as, as, as Gondon was saying. But I think he also was very much a politician who had, you know, very much a kind of a personalised kind of politics. Um, you know, the way he engaged people was very much also in a kind of a populist um, frame. It was very much um, emotive rhetoric connecting with you know, the people very broadly. He also did, obviously, you know, he famously went and pursued a PhD in Switzerland and wrote about um, law, and that was his training. And of course, he was um, committed to that legacy. But I do think that one of the reasons why he kind of proved incapable of having you know, building a proper political organization, as it were. He didn't really show much interest in it, is because of that, because he is kind of this sort of older style um, sort of politician, which was obviously, and as sort of Gordon was saying, I mean, the fact that it was an umbrella organization was managed to them to sort of pull together a broad range of different political and social forces around this single issue of the oil nationalization that was super important. But I mean, it also was a weakness in terms of the lack of perhaps you could say the resilience in some ways. And obviously, there were huge, huge, massive, massive challenges that he was confronting, and he was constantly basically having to put out multiple fires on different fronts. But the fact that I think. I do think this was probably, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, was kind of a, a potential um, weakness of the National Front. And it is one actually which the National Front continues to revisit um, on numerous occasions, um, actually. So I think that's just, uh, you know, that's important maybe just to to, to bring out there. Absolutely. In some ways, he even has, you know, there's evidence that he has some suspicion of you know, truly mass politics, you know, so it's that that sort of old school political background that he has is is absolutely shapes his view of what's happening at this moment. I mean, I, I would certainly emphasize, as Eskandar does, that to sort of, you know, that there are, he faces an enormous number of challenges that are outside of just that, that sort of history of his own sort of um, political tendencies. But certainly it's one worth flagging. Just say one more thing. I just wanted to say one more, one poor individual that I actually forgot that I would really like to f- highlight. I mean, was the the Iranian Toilers Party, um, and then uh, actually, it's in the course of the National Movement two fifty one fifty three. There's a split in the Toilers Party. It's basically an alliance between an uncomfortable alliance, I would say, between Mozafar Bakri, who is a French trained philosopher, and politician demagogue, demagogue who had some very kind of dubious political leanings, and 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 you know, there's a lot of speculation of um, really what was his relationship to British and all these sorts of things and whether he was responsible through his newspaper Shahid of like, you know, propagating lots of black propaganda when he turned against um, Mossadegh. But the other person in this equation is, uh, is someone by the name of Khalil Maliki, who actually is a very important figure who broke with the two-day party in 48 over what he saw as its subservience to the Soviet Union. And it's actually Maliki is a very, very important kind of figure, both for actually very, in a, in a, and he was actually also German trained. He spent, he was in Germany in the 30s, studied there. Uh, he knew German. Um, actually, when he was in prison, he would actually be reading uh, Marx's Kapital. Uh, and they would then be sort of translating it in prisons, actually. And he would, in a sense, be doing uh, kind of interpreting it and reading it alongside with others. And they would sort of do like one page at a time kind of translation. They would hide the they would hide their copy of Capital in the yard. And then uh, when the guards were, when it was possible, then they would retrieve it and all these sorts of. So he was actually a very kind of uh, interesting, quite senior figure, actually, 
in uh, the Tudor party. He was even sent to kind of mediate in Azerbaijan when he was still a member of it because he was from uh, Tabriz. So as was Tagi Arani, actually. So, I mean, this is all kind of important to kind of know. Khalem Aliki, by the time he breaks the Tudor party, he kind of is like, and the reason I said that the background with the, with Capital and actually the some knowledge of the Marxist socialist canon is because he kind of gives a real sort of theoretical like sophistication to this idea of negative equilibrium. And when he breaks with Bahá'í, his new organization is still called the Toilers Party, it's called Third Force. And the idea, obviously, I mean, the idea is very much this idea you know, of the third world and it, pre- and it precedes Bandung of like 1955, you know, where Nehru, Sakano um, um, and Nasser are coming together to kind of, you know, sort of, Lay down this path for actually the non-aligned, you know, non-aligned comes later, but actually the third, the third world, in a sense, coming together and rejecting this kind of compulsion to be part of either the American or, or the Soviet bloc. In like the like very early on, actually before that, uh, Maliki is thinking through of like what it would mean, what needs to happen for Iran to kind of play this role uh, alongside other countries such as India and Nehru's India. And yeah, theorizing actually what Mossadegh is doing politically and trying to and is pursuing this sort of political agenda, Maliki, this independent socialist and obviously allied and sympathetic intellectuals are very much who are very much drawn to this is trying to theorize like how can uh, Iran be part of a, a broader kind of international coalition of what we today call the global south and then maintain and retain and preserve its independence uh, in the face of what they saw a clear kind of Soviet aggression on the one hand and British and then later, obviously, American uh, aggression on the other. Yeah, I think if uh, Maliki was more widely known among non-Iranians, he would be championed as one of the sort of important figures of this and, and early figures of, as, as Eskandar says, becomes a kind of third worldist ethos. And he's extremely important in this moment. Um, in a way that even gets short shrift in the in the uh, Iranian historiography, I think, because he doesn't have the kind of political power of a figure like Mossadegh or the the and he never and you know the Tudeh party is is so much bigger than the post split groups that that Maliki founds. I want to flag something. I want to kind of mention something because there tends to be this kind of understanding of the post coup period as a time when the repressive apparatus of the Pahlavi government with an enormous, with both enormous financial and sort of material manpower help from the CIA sort of dramatically expands. But I want to note that this is something, the idea of the the sort of military intelligence and broader intelligence force being sort of specifically concerning itself with anti-communism is much longer standing in 20th century Iran. But in the 1940s, when we started to see the sort of the little by little, especially in 49, uh, this repression of the Tudeh party, you know, after its sort of ability to create this mass movement and this concern from the Shah about its ability to do so. But before the this moment where the repressive arm of the state expands in the post-coup moment, it's already expanding. In the We talked about the 1931 law, it's expanding in the 1940s. And in, 1920, in the 1920s, there is something founded in the Iranian military called or the second bureau based on the French intelligence force of the same name that is starting to really cultivate strong anti- anti-communist credentials of its own. There's all of this sort of archival 
stories about intelligence officers trying to familiarize themselves with communist writing, with the uh, the head of the you know the this person kind of put in charge of of anti Tude activities at an earlier point in the forties. Walking into Tude uh, headquarters, you know, Tude is an open party at this point. It's not underground, and just asking for being like, hey, I'm interested in reading uh, Tariyanani's work, issues of Donia, and and just sort of being handed the things that he's looking for uh, openly. So at the same time that the Tude is organizing at an open level, there's also this kind of new uh, anti-communist effort in the in the part of the expanding military. So again, one of the things I really like to emphasize is that starting in the earliest part of the Reza Shah period, we see every decade an exp- a further expansion and a further expansion and a further expansion of the surveillance and policing arms of the state. And with that comes these big sort of intelligence projects that really, really specifically sort of see their role as anti-communism, as anti-Tudaism. And they don't always know who is what. You know, there's all of these like sort of ridiculous stories of them mistaking one something for another thing. But yeah, you know, this is I I wanted to emphasize that before we got to the coup, because there tends to be this idea that the sort of repression really escalates after the coup. And that's certainly the case. But it's I think you could also make the case that the coup um, represents a kind of opportunity once to kind of complete something that the Shah is wanting to do um, and is starting to do in the 1940s in terms of broad-based surveillance. And again, he's already getting help, particularly from the British at this point, in terms of how to sort of carry out these, these broadly speaking, anti-socialist, anti-communist um, activities. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond, and you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Red Hot City, Housing, Race, and Exclusion in 21st Century Atlanta by Daniel Immergluck. Red Hot City is an incisive examination of how growth at all costs planning and policy have exacerbated inequality and racial division in Atlanta. Exploring the city's past and future, Red Hot City tracks the racial and economic shifts and the politics that produced them. Red Hot City by Daniel Immergluck. Out now from University of California Press. Learn more at ucpress.edu. Let's talk about the, the nationalization period leading right up to the coup. How did Mossadegh move from winning power to consolidating that power to the extent that he nationalized the oil and then moved to sideline the Shah and take full control? over the Iranian government, government, particularly over military and security forces that had remained under the Shah's control? Well, I mean, I think we have to maybe go back a little bit. So, I mean, um, what really happens is that obviously oil, the, oil, the prime minister is um, Raz Mara in, you know, initially in, I think, 49, and then he's assassinated. And in a sense, his assassination. There's a lot of kind of back and forth and actually struggles going on in this period, which I won't get into. But basically, it's actually the nationalisation takes place 
Um, and then actually Mossadegh, um, you know, then is basically named prime minister. Um, and this is because it's something of a fair accompli for the Shah, because in a sense, the writing is on the wall. I mean, the impetus and, you know, and sort of support for um, nationalisation had already basically the ground that had been laid and had gathered such steam that it was kind of like an immovable uh, object, really. And the Shah had to kind of um, give way. Mossadegh was seen as its main steward, its main advocate. It's sort of the face of it, really, in many ways, most you know, outspoken in parliament and parliamentary debates. And this was, so, um, you know, he he already was a national figure and he was seen as, as you said, you know, as the governor was saying, incorruptible, as, you know, really um, unparalleled politician of integrity um, and one who was fiercely anti-British as well, I should say. I mean, unlike Raz Mara, who's a friend of the British, yeah, or even was seen as maybe even having you know strong relationships with the Soviets and things like this. I mean, um, there was lots of speculation about this, and um, actually Mossadegh um, doesn't really condemn his assassination when it happens. And actually, this is something which uh, a lot of people actually subsequently criticised him and sort of take as a sign of his kind of um, sort of more demagogic kind of side of Mossadegh. But anyway. Um, you know, he sort of then becomes prime minister. Often, I mean, he's usually since the first democratically elected. This isn't the case. I mean, he's um, basically invited to assume uh, office. He's a, you know, it's why it's best to maybe describe him as sort of, as a popular anti-colonial or popular nationalist kind of prime minister who's very much stewarding this project. And I mean, the reality of it is, is that the British immediately move to try and destroy these gains. I mean, the nationalisation. And, you know, Mossadegh does try all sorts of ways of reading, of reaching what you would call like a, a sort of, you could say, a reasonable accommodation with the British. Um, it's not like these are simply just appropriated and they tell the British, you know, get lost. It's actually, you know, he sends his tr- a trusted figure who becomes very significant in the revolution, Mehdi Bazargan, an engineer by training to go and oversee this process in Abadan. He actually wants to retain the experts in the Anglo-Iranian um, oil company, like um, various, so the British actually, so you can continue actually working. They don't kick out the the sort of the British um, sort of administrators and the people actually running the industry. Obviously, they want better and fairer conditions and they want to obviously, but they, you know, it's not actually um, in the mold of later, you could say sort of anti-colonial appropriations of like various kind of former colonial properties or um, it's actually a quite um, much more, you could say timid, or let us say timid, a much more, you could say tempered, tempered is more the right word, approach, because he's not naive and he doesn't want to necessarily, even though he has great antipathy towards the British, he doesn't want to just simply antagonise them. So, and I think this is actually important to say, uh, I think this is very, very important to say, because they also offer to reimburse the British as well, I mean, and try to reach some kind of reasonable solution. But I think that's important to lay the ground because the British um, response is just like, forget it. I mean, it's like, who do you think you are? Like, um, how dare you? That's like really the response. Um, so basically all of the British uh, personnel, you know, told pack up and leave, uh, which they promptly do. Um, so there is something like a, like a vacuum of expertise here, which is obviously, imp- I think, important to note. And obviously, the, and nevertheless, you know, Iranians try to step into the fold and, and, and actually sort of um, take the reins. Um, that definitely happened. But and very immediately, very immediately, the British moved to kind of declare this um, illegal, that, you know, um, that actually this is actually a contract with a private corporation 
um, and you violated that the terms of that contract, and therefore um, you either have to reverse decision or offer, you know, some degree kind of inordinate amount of kind of compensation, which could never actually uh, be paid back, and all these sorts of things. And then, obviously, uh, the British take this to the International Court of Justice. Um, Mossad goes famously there, makes the Iranian case, and the British lose. The British then call for a massive embargo. So obviously, you know, today it's very common that we talk of the age of sanctions and trying to throttle people's and strangulate economies um, through recourse to sanctions. The British very, very quickly, you know, move to impose like a naval blockade on Iran. And actually, also importantly, I need to mention, I mean, under the Labour government at first, uh, the British actually draw up a plan called Operation Buccaneer to literally invade Iran and occupy um, the oil installations and take them by force. This is drawn up. Under the Labour government that builds the modern welfare state in Britain. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, social imperialism, I mean, they managed to, you know, you can have welfare at home and imperialism abroad. I mean, we can, we can reconcile the two in their heads. Um, so people like Bevan and others, not Nye Bevan, Ernest Bevan, very, I mean, his his statements are just as colonial and racist as you would, as almost from Churchill, I mean, and oh, Anthony Eden, that you, when the Conservative government comes in. So, you know, I think there is immediately pushback, um, absolutely uncompromising. And I mean, there is this debate, which I just think is probably worth flagging of, you know, what really was mot- what ultimately motivated the coup, the drive to overthrow Mossad, Mossad. Was it oil or was it the Cold War? Um, and with the British, it's undoubtedly oil. It's immediately their economic interests. And also, I mean, you know, it's, it's very important to control this because... Um, it was essential kind of for, for, you know, maintaining whatever remained, I guess, and very little of it, of sort of a sterling zone or actually attaining kind of, you know, uh, basically selling oil in pounds. I mean, this was obviously uh, very, very kind of important for sustaining and rebuilding uh, the British economy in the wake of the um, Second World War, which had been absolutely kind of devastated. So that was just another. So for the, so, and also just, you know, the British had a long established networks um, led by kind of eccentric figures. I mean, Anne Lampton was would be based and was teaching at SOAS, you know, at the University of London. But you had people like Robin Zayner, who was based at All Souls College in Oxford, who was an expert of kind of ancient religions and Hinduism, all these sorts of things. Very kind of eccentric figure who was basically organising, aspiring, famously these brothers called the Rashidian brothers, and getting them to basically run operations on the ground and organize various mobs and, and through the press and plant stories and, like I said, black propaganda and all this. So the British are kind of all guns blazing, um, like from the get go. And then, I mean, I could pause here, but then the question is, you know, how can they perhaps maybe convince the Americans at this point, obviously it's the Truman administration initially, and then subsequently the Eisenhower administration. I mean, but the British, you know, very much organized from the get-go are trying to overturn this. Mossadegh is then obviously trying to think of, you know, given the naval blockade, given the strain on finances, which quickly comes into, kicks in, how can they uh, run the country, you know, in the absence of these, in the face of dwindling oil revenues? How can they run run the country in face of and can maintain some degree of a kind of a parliamentary system in the face of all of these kind of subversive challenges, very often being, you know, pushed by um, the British um, to some extent, you know, outright sort of buying and bribing politicians in the Majlis as well. This is something which increasingly comes in, uh, comes to comes to a head. And then, of course, from the British, there's a lot of pressure on the Shah to basically come out very flatly and exert his prerogative to dismiss Mossadegh. And really what it comes to ahead, and it's famously called um, Siomatir, so the 30th of Tir, which is a which is a month of the Iranian 
Canada, there is a sort of like um, tussle between the Shah over control of the war ministry um, and the Shah basically making it an issue of, I'm um, sorry, Mossadegh making it an issue that I will ultimately resign unless you give this up. And I think this does go back to this question of he, you know, he's saying that you know the Shah needs to submit to the constitution and to the civilian government ultimately in trying to it's not that he's anti-monarchy, he doesn't want he's not sort of trying to abolish the monarchy, he's not trying to oust the Shah. This is not at all what is actually happening. He's trying to basically force the Shah to basically stay within his constitutional like remit. I mean, that's what he's really trying to do. And the Shah um refuses. Mossadegh was known for being, you know, dramatic. And that was actually a source of his great power of being able to reach into, you know, Iranians, uh, reach out to them and and really kind of tap into a deep kind of, um, yeah, a reservoir of like emotions and feelings and sentiment um, to get them on side. Anyway, he he ultimately resigns over this. And people actually, mo- and Qawam al-Sartaneh, this kind of uh, veteran figure who had played a very important role, actually, in the 1946 Azerbaijan crisis, He's sort of reeled out, sort of very kind of elderly at this point to kind of exert discipline and and sort of make sure that the, I don't want to say make sure the British gender is imposed, but basically return things to the status quo ante. I mean, that's really what the service, the, 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 the role he was supposed to play. And great to the chagrin of both himself and to the shock, and this basically ends Qabon um, al career, and great to the shock, you know, great to the shock of the Shah, to the shock of the British, who very briefly, you know, take a big, have a, a huge sigh of relief and think we're rid of this guy, Mossadegh. Finally, um, people mobilize uh, en masse, demanding Mossadegh's reinstatement, and it's like a huge, huge thing. It's it's absolutely kind of epic, and it kind of reminds me of when I mean when I sort of had seen the documentary of the overthrow of Chavez, <laughs> and the people sort of mobilizing. I mean, maybe that's a good analogy to some extent. You know, people literally in a spontaneous way mobilizing, getting pouring into the streets and calling for his reinstatement. Um, yeah, and he is reinstated. And this actually basically leaves egg on the face, as they say, uh, on the British, on Qavam, and really neuters the Shah. And the Shah after this is absolutely kind of, um, he's winded and doesn't really know what to do. And then ultimately, you know, this sets the ground for, lays the ground for him leaving the country with his uh, second wife, um, Suraya, and going to um, to Rome. And then basically this being framed as exile. But I mean, it would be wrong to say that the Mossadegh ever had some this sort of agenda of, uh, you know, turning Iran into this sort of a republic and being rid of the monarchy. Um, that probably that, w- that would be an overreach. Well, no. As he said, there's this big debate in the historiography about whether the coup is about oil or if it, whether it's a Cold War thing. It's about communism. And again, the, for the British, it, it's I agree, there's really no question. It's about oil and it's about what they see as their oil, right? There's this amazing, um, you know, if I had, if this was a video and not an audio, I would show it, but there's this amazing news story that uh, sort of uh, in in British newspapers where they're publicizing photos of Abaddon where the oil refinery is and saying, Abaddon, the, the fruit of British industry, this is the direct quote, the fruit of British industry that Persia covets. Um, so that's the way that it's being, and if you watch newsreels from, from the, from Britain at the time, this is absolutely the language that this was a desert. The Iranians would never have found this oil. They would have never cultivated this space. They don't have the capacity to, they're simply not capable of it. Um, so that kind of high colonial idea, and, and we find it, I mean, all over the world today still, when we're talking about um, national resources, which is that 
national resources shouldn't be in the view of, of the sort of colonial thinkers in the hands of those who aren't using them correctly, that the, the fruits should belong to the to the industrious, right? So that from the British point of view, this is absolutely a British. It's it's simply by you know their response is is total is absolute as as Kander said in this regard. Similarly, you know the way that they are because from the beginning they're trying to get the Americans on board with what they're with with this. They're trying to get the Americans as incensed about this as as they are. And there's this really telling quote from what was then a confidential British memo saying that the security of the free world is dependent on large quantities of oil from Middle Eastern sources. If the attitude in Iran spreads to Saudi Arabia or Iraq, the whole structure will break down. Control of that asset is of supreme importance to the world order, right? So this is the narrative that they are, that this is how they feel, but it's also what they're sort of telling, particularly the Americans. But what I want to note is that just because I think Eskandar really did masterclass in, in the Iranian context. But we actually see that what happens in this moment is that Iran's ability to sell its oil absolutely grinds to a halt. As Eskandar said, it's kind of a prelude to um, contemporary sanctions on Iran, and it has the same logic of, of crushing its uh, ability to um, sort of function economically. But the production of oil in the Middle East actually increases in 1951, 52, and 53, because the Aramco and the British, uh, the Americans and the British essentially sort of pivot to bringing more oil out of Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Kuwait, right? So this is actually an important moment in the shift of oil politics into a kind of latter half of 20th century in the broader Middle East as well. So while the British are digging in their heels and eventually the Americans get um, involved and, and, and in fact, they succeed in having the, the Iranian ability to sell uh, oil grind to a screeching halt, they are not actually having a hard time getting oil. And in fact, uh, oil production in the broader Middle East, um, as I said, increases. It's not quite at the same level of, you know, the, the economic, the numbers are different in these different contexts, right? Like the oil concession in Iran is actually so imbalanced in favor of the British, even more so than other colonial, similar colonial uh, deals. So it's not that the numbers all remain the same, but rather that we actually see a shift. And I think this is important to the sort of broader structure of regional power in the latter half of the 20th century and leads into a different moment in the kind of in the OPEC moment in the 1970s, right? So we this is an important national uh, story about national history and anti-colonialism in the Iranian context. It's an important story in terms of North-South relationships and the way that the, the CIA in particular sort of flexes its muscle for the first time before then going ahead and doing so in Guatemala the next year and, and then just making a uh, like a practi- practically yearly habit of overthrowing governments it doesn't like, but it also shifts oil politics uh, in in a in a broader way, in a way that I think is actually relatively under discussed. Right, the fact that oil production increases rather than decreases in the in the greater Middle East in the three in the two three year period of of the oil crisis and Mossadegh's government before the coup is I think um, both not understood as much as it should be, and really crucial to sort of the way that the political configuration shifts in the post-coup era to a moment where it becomes the Americans rather than the British uh, as the major power 
in the region. And part of this has to do with their relationship to oil production in Saudi Arabia and the sort of elevation of of Saudi Arabia as a regional power uh, as well. So I just wanted to kind of talk about that to bring it into a slightly different, yeah, a different kind of political economy than the one that you get just from the that from the super, super important Iranian context. Just one minor point just on this. I mean, which I think um, Christopher Dietrich has spoken about in his book. I mean, Mossadegh and the Mossadegh moment is super like important insofar as it kind of popularizes this notion of sovereign rights. I mean, I mean, it seems kind of commonsensical and self-evident today that um, that the people uh, that the people of a, of a country should control their natural resources um, and that those should be put you know should be at the disposal of of the citizens of their country to use to advance development and obviously the well-being and and public good of of the people of that nation but that of course was not at all um self-evident in this period and still it's something which is contested uh uh in also in all matter in- I mean yeah you have Elon Musk saying we'll coup exactly. whoever we want to get that those Bolivian yeah. Lithium resources. So. Yeah, yeah. So this whole notion of like just sovereign rights. I mean, I think like you know, Mossadeghism. It was obviously wasn't alone in this, uh, but it really is in this period where this just spreads. You know, across the the yeah, you know, what we call the global south today, and increasingly is 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 something which is thought to be you know is fought for and is and is asserted and is said. You know, we're not going to compromise this and you know the old you know the day of the colonial overlords just you know using and draining our resources at will uh, is done um so Mossadegh is super super I think like uh, a key watershed figure here um for sure yeah it's so interesting because as Eskandar said he's not a figure like these new figures he's not Abdel Nasser like he's actually a kind of old school Iranian political figure in many many ways but then he inaugurates, or at least he is such a big part of inaugurating and making really publicly evident the appeal of this kind of nationalization in in a broader kind of anti-colonial politics, right? And uh, Abdel Nasser name checks Mossadegh and the oil nationalization process in 1956 when the Egyptians and uh, uh, under Nasser attempt to nationalize the Suez. You know, he, this is this is absolutely one of his influences in that regard. So, I think Mossadegh both stands out as someone who's a little bit different than the anti-colonialists that are the anti-colonial nationalist figures who are most associated with the, the Bandung moment. But at the same time, it's so clearly part of that moment and an influence. You know, Bandung happens just a couple of years later, and it's so clearly an influence. And on the other side, you know, the reason I I brought up the sort of oil production. Uh, and Saudi Arabia and this kind of new geopolitical configuration within American power is that it's also a reconfiguration. If there's a reconfiguration of of solidarities across, you know, these South-South connections, Afro-Asian conferences, eventually the tricontinental, there's also a kind of reconfiguration of reactionary forces um, and the elevation of new sort of regional powers, right? And in the sort of latter half of the 20th century, when we go into the sort of era of American neocolonialism, imperialism, however you want to talk about it. So this is a big shifting moment, both in Iran and I think broader, more broadly, uh, geopolitically, uh, globally. How did the coup actually play out? And what what was the domestic balance of power inside Iran on the eve of the coup that the CIA and its British intelligence counterpart were able to so masterfully exploit? 
like I do think it's important to, so just to start off I think this it, there was some discontent and like I said there were the, the that coalition the national front had been fraying really since like July like even before July 52 but with July 52 you have kind of outright sort of um increasingly kind of frictions and um divisions within sort of the leaderships of people like Hossein Maki and Ayatollah Khashoggi and others uh, become increasingly like and vocally kind of critical of Mossadegh I think that's like important because often when people sort of discuss the coup there's kind of this um debate which i mean i think it's kind of like a, a, a false debate but um it's like what is the balance of like what was the role of internal forces and what was the role of kind of the security intelligence services um particularly the cia mi6 and stuff but i think it's also just important to realize that the shah himself was quite indecisive and i think that is really crucial he was actually very he he, he couldn't stand mossadegh but he was a, he was a timorous fellow and so um he he realized the the depth of feeling he realized the the kind of the passions which Mossadegh um could kind of engender and bring out and he was very wary about openly coming out against that and at the same time we have the british very much trying to urge him and saying you need to come out i mean against mossadegh and obviously they they this is very much something which is tried in july 52 has failed then the shah is very much kind of um you know feels defeated um flees and then what what's actually interesting is that the intelligence services uh, basically reach out to his twin sister um ashraf who is generally seen as the much stronger more decisive uh, personality they reach out to her, the French Riviera. She's she was she was also very like a notorious gambler. Um, you know, you should never have, you should never call her before noon uh, because she you know had been up to all hours gambling away. But anyway, so the you know very much there's this push, and it's all sort of documented actually in this famous kind of Wilbur report, which is kind of the write up by this former CIA officer um, of the coup later reaching out to her to say you need to kind of push Mohammad Reza, you know, your brother. um to basically support a coup to support a coup against Mossadegh and yeah ultimately you know and the Shah constantly kind of needs sort of reassurance and coddling and being told that this is going to be okay and that his monarchy will be restored and that he'll be you know he'll be protected yeah, yeah and, and, and so on and so he needs forth. a lot of handholding yeah he he does he do, he does and I'm it lying. really actually comes super through and like you know it really comes through in the kind of primary sources when you're like reading them so you know they need to very much get him on board and he actually doesn't need to do um all that much he basically needs to in essence sign a farman basically like a like a decree saying that he's going to he's willing to dismiss mossadegh i mean that's like a key kind of important thing and so and part of the context for this is because i mean a lot of people sort of criticize mossad for his decision he basically suspends um the parliament um uh, because i mean in his estimation there's so much in a sense subversion uh, going on uh, the, and trying to undermine his um kind of his premiership at every single turn he kind of makes his decision to try and you know to suspend um uh parliament and then after doing this very much this call comes to sort of issue this decree for his dismissal and you know there's a lot of planning going into who are going to be in a sense the key actors uh, in this coup i mean internally who is going to be mainly collaborating so as i said on the one hand there's this intelligence network um very pro british anglophile uh, intelligence network of the rashidian brothers 
Um, that's one thing. But the most important aspect of it, I think, is actually the army, of course, as you would expect. So this is why, I mean, it's this is very much obviously you know, in the genre, a classic genre of a neo-colonial coup insofar as, you know, the, they're not directly kind of actually overthrowing, the, you know, the colonial powers aren't actually, imperial powers aren't overthrow, directly everything, but they're very much reliant on cultivating, pushing, uh, are, you know, supporting in logistically all manner of ways. Military officers, um, first and foremost amongst them, Fazullah Zahidi, who then becomes the premier in the aftermath of the coup, supporting him and ensuring that this can actually be carried out uh, on the morning of the coup. So, yeah, the, the military is absolutely essential here in being mobilized. There is this sort of attack on Mossadegh's home. He escapes. Uh, um, temporarily, and then um, initially the coup isn't successful, and, and it's actually many think it is lost. And it's famously Kermit Roosevelt plays this very kind of, and he kind of um, he sort of outlines his role in his famous book, kind of counter coup, and often it's sort of saying that he's kind of too, you know he's um, blowing his own horn a lot and maybe exaggerating his importance or whatnot. But I don't think there's any doubt that like you know um, he very much was resolute and had and showed resolve and actually you know this um, and actually not conceding the fact that the coup hadn't initially been a complete success and, and continuing to actually push forward um, with it. And obviously, yeah, Mossadegh is ultimately arrested, um, um, arraigned. But also there's like a coalition of actually social forces at this time that are, are supporting um, kind of this push by, yeah, first and foremost by, by, by the military and very much have a role, a very kind of, you could say, insidious role in both like actually murdering a well-known uh, police chief who was sympathetic to Mossadegh, Afshatus, as well as actually, um, you know, a, a huge kind of propaganda campaign um, against his government, which was absolutely, you know, which was very, very kind of important as well as yeah, I mean these other these various politicians. So Mossad Mossafar Bakoi, who who is often accused of actually maybe having a role in this assassination of this police chief, who is sympathetic to Mossad, which just happens earlier on. As well as actually um, Ayatollah Koshani in mobilizing maybe more religiously inclined elements. You know, you could say lumpen elements very much from the bazaar, but also figures such as um, Shaban Bimoch, Shaban the Brainless. You could say um, thuggish kind of tough character who was mobilizing very much on the streets. And yeah, and court clerics such as, you know, Ayatollah Behbahani, who also were very much on the side of the, the Pahlavis and, and were very much you know, adamant to try and support the overthrow of Mossadegh. So there were obviously internal forces that were disgruntled by Mossadegh. But I think my um, response to people who sort of, uh, particularly revisionist uh, historians who try to basically e exaggerate the role of internal forces is that the coup simply could just never, have, I mean, the, no coup is ever carried out without the collaboration of internal elements. Um, that's just never happens, uh, almost never happens, I could say. But the but the fact of the matter is that the coup could just never have taken place without this huge amount of um, logistical, financial support. Um, just you know, throughout the whole period, just yeah, obviously, and also the, the the huge amount of pressure outside, just eroding and trying to undercut the Mossad government at every single turn. So you have this ex huge external pressure from the outside. You have um, this sort of frame coalition on the inside. And obviously, key, they're literally planning how this needs to go, like step by step by step by step, and basically trying to find individuals and elements uh, to, to, to work alongside and actually carry this through and, and basically execute it through to um, completion. And just one last point, I mean, obviously, when it actually is pulled off, and when the sort of the, the Zahidi government then comes into power, 
there's a, immediately from the Americans a financial package in order to stabilize the economy. So, you know, it's not simply like, uh, you know, there was sort of this, I mean, and actually what is actually important, to, another thing important to note is that, you know, the Shah basically denied, obviously, when he was restored to his throne, he denied that a coup ever took place. They used to call it like actually a... Um, like a, like a popular uprising because the people were, you know, they had missed uh, and desperate to restore their beloved Shah. And this was like a complete denialism actually about this for decades, really. And it's only in the 2000s when the basically the Wilbur report is, it comes out finally that we have like, you know, really irrefutable evidence of just the degree to which, you know, uh, this was orchestrated by uh, MI6 and um, CIA. Connor. Yeah, even until the current day, there's still revisionist historians who are trying to, you know, essentially royalist or maybe crypto royalist in the sense that they're not coming out and saying that they are, they're not, there's no royal government for them to be affiliated with. But there's still revisionist efforts to paint the internal dynamics of Iran is much, much more important. I mean, at this point, it's impossible. I mean, it's impossible to say that the CIA and MI6 were not involved. But from very early stages, there's, you know, the historiography of the coup is replete with examples of supposedly independent scholars, or at least nominally independent scholars, sort of taking the the Shah party line that, you know, that there's minimal involvement by the CIA and MI6. And really, this is a more or less a kind of internal uh, dynamics that brings the Shah uh, or that, that sort of deposes Mossadegh, that this is, uh, that people missed, that they just missed Mohammad Reza Pahlavi too much and that they wanted him back <laughs> on the throne. But, uh, you know, as Eskander as says, the, the CIA, we know that the CIA and British intelligence begin in, in late 1952 to formally plan the coup. I mean, they are having undergoing the step-by-step process of deciding how that they're going to carry this out, right? Because we have to understand also that this is, you know, the CIA is a relative baby at this point. It hasn't, it, now we know that the CIA does this, but this was like their inaugural, their, you know, first, first time at the dance, trying to, trying to overthrow a government they didn't like without really putting boots on the ground or without you know, that this wasn't a sort of counterinsurgency effort. It was it was a intelligence operation, right? So the British from an earlier period have a fairly comprehensive network, a who's who of, of military personnel, of bazaar merchants, of the US, the CIA has already has hundreds of advisors embedded in the military, in the collaborators placed in the bazaar, placed in important these important figures. And so there's already this, this network that they, and again, remember I had mentioned that the on the intelligence side and on the, on the security, security side, there was already sort of British efforts to inoculate what they thought of as inoculating Iran against potential communist incursion through, through training the, and, and sort of working directly with, with these, with these individuals, including there are efforts to sort of uh, influence the cultural terrain, like placing, you know, gentle anti-communist or anti-national nationalizing articles into different newspapers and so forth. So there's this kind of effort to, even before the coup is being organized to sort of 
influence the course of political thinking in the country, uh, let alone political action. So by the time 50, late 52 rolls around and they're planning this specific intelligence operation, what on the eventually on the American side is called Operation Ajax, they there's already this sort of you know longer standing kind of infiltration into important institutions and also into the cultural milieu of British and then also American later American like forms of thinking. Historiographical fact is that since the Wilbur report in the early 2000s and 2000, we've really had a great deal of further sort of declassification of information going up to the late 2010s, uh, some of the most recent uh, information. And so we're constantly revising who we understand to have been working with the CIA in particular, or who we understand to have worked more closely with the Americans and the British than we earlier understood, or exactly what the conversations were between the uh, important figures and and Mossadegh. We're constantly revising these things. But on some level, the basic parameters of the coup were well understood very, very early on. I mean, virtually immediately. Um, and so these these debates have about how we understand this event have are, you know, in a moment before there was really irrefutable evidence, there were how you viewed the event internally in Iran was split along essentially political lines. Right. So if you were a royalist, you would sort of minimize American or British involvement. But again, I think it's important to understand that there was a widespread understanding among the Iranian polity that a coup uh, sort of orchestrated primarily by the Americans had happened. It's not, it wasn't a secret to Iranians, even though at the same time, you know, the CIA is basically ghostwriting articles in the New York Times about how, you know, that are just totally fiction. They're like fictitious accounts of, of the story of what happened that they are sort of promoting in the American and the Euro-American public sphere. But in the Iranian public sphere, there's widespread understanding awareness of the of the coup. And it's part of the analysis of the next generations of, of Iranian political activists, um, both nationalists and leftists, um, student movement. I mean, there is, the coup becomes this touch touch them, there's no debate about its veracity uh, or about who's behind it among these uh, Iranian movements. And I think that that's something I, that we'll, that we'll see um, in the next half of our conversation is that just as much as, you know, I think that the listeners of the dig largely know about the coup, but it's not like the most well-known thing in American or British politics, but from the beginning, it's, it's something that is known across the board uh, in, in Iranian politics and comes to really, really shape the tenor of the second half of the 20th century. So just so, yeah, I just, I mean, there's a lot there to think about at this point, and there's a huge amount which we've actually not been able to address and have missed out. But I mean, but I mean, between the, I mean, the, so there's initial two attempted at a queue on the 16th, uh, and the queue is actually successful ultimately on the 19th. But I mean, one, I mean, we want to sort of in a nutshell, sort of uh, get an idea of the degree of actually CIA influence. I mean, the head of the queue, General Zahidi, is literally kept in a CIA safe house. I mean, this is what comes through in the latest tranche of kind of like documents. So, I mean, this kind of revisionist attempt to sort of blame it on the reactionary clergy and it's all their fault and, and so on and so forth is kind of, yeah, it's a very, very little base in the documents and it's really just kind of uh, wishful thinking and 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a sort of sign of desperation in many ways because you know it is, the evidential basis for it is 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 just not there. Like, period. Um, another thing that I did actually want to emphasize, and I think it is super important actually, is the degree to which um, the I mean, there's also a desire to exaggerate the the two party are powerful. They have lots of kind of front organizations through which they're mobilizing, and they will identify often through wearing their kind of white famous white shirts and stuff. But there is like lots of accounts as well of like British um, operatives um, and collaborators going to like um, protests. So famously, when Avril Harriman went to actually kind of try and mediate with Mossadegh, basically trying to inflate, trying to kind of massively exaggerate the, the threat of imminent, of Iran sort of imminently going communist. And also we just have to think that the Chinese revolution had just happened in 49 and all of this quote unquote, sort of you know, all of the sort of um, the furore about, quote, the, you know, the West losing China or America losing China. Um, so this was very much sort of in their minds. And actually, the British and Rashidians and so on and, and so forth were actually very active in printing kind of fabricated uh, material, also saying, you know, Mossadegh was Jewish or say, you know, sort of anti-Semitic kind of tropes, trying to tap in, uh, trying to actually use those, um, as well as actually printing material where the Tudeh were, who were actually very careful on this question of explicitly attacking the clergy and Islam. So very much trying to actually, and, and I think it is actually also of note that the British did not have a, and this is a broader pattern from uh, which I think very much shapes the 20th uh, century of cultivating religious forces in this period against um, communist ones or trying to, in many ways, provoke religious animus or fear or, you know, and we see this obviously in Indonesia in, you know, in the, in the massacres which take place in the, with the ouster of Sukarno later, but very much trying to tap into this fear by um, religious forces, sort of um, emerging Islamist ones, that, you know, this communist threat is, it domestically is a serious threat to you and internationally, you know, to the Americans as well, trying to very much, I mean, and the British are very effective and very active in trying to, to trying to do this, of saying, you know, yeah, if, if Mossadegh, even if he's not a communist, he's elderly, and basically this is just laying the ground for a communist uh, overthrow and 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 uh, and and seizure of power um, very shortly thereafter. So this is why it's kind of a this kind of absolutely decisive fault line um, in the Cold War as well. That was part two of my interview with Eskandar Siddiqui Borajerdi and Golnar Nikpur. Stay tuned as our next two episodes on the history of modern Iran are released over the coming weeks. Eskandar Siddiqui Borajerdi is a professor of contemporary politics and modern history of the Middle East at Goldsmiths College, University of London, and the author of Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran. Golnar Nikpur is a professor of history at Dartmouth College with an interest in histories of law, incarceration, and rights in modern Iran, and is currently finishing her first book project, A History of Iranian Prisons and Carcerality in a Global Context. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, anyone who knows anything of history knows that great social changes are impossible without the feminine ferment. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tammuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. 
Our senior advisors are Fiorio Francos and Ben Maybe. A really big thanks to Nushin Samimi and Sarah Hassani for helping put this series together, and to Eskandar and Golnar too. Getting this prepared was a truly collaborative operation. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling other people to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. (laughs) 